Hello, everybody, and welcome. I am your host, Adam Rodericks, and today I am elated to welcome you to a special KPMG Podbyte series entitled The State of Crypto Assets. If you missed our first episode, I encourage you to go back and check that out as well. Today, I'm joined by my esteemed colleagues in technology risk consulting, Edwin Kunal and Kareem. Welcome, everybody. Can we start off with some brief roundtable introductions? We'll start with you, Edwin. Please let everybody know who you are and what you do at the firm. Yes, good day, everybody. The name is Edwin Eisted. I'm in the KPMG management consulting practice. And in the organization, I really look primarily in the payment space as well as digital assets and blockchain. Quite related characteristics, those two. Right. Hey, Adam. Nice to be back again. Uh, Kunal Basin, senior manager in our risk consulting practice, and I co-lead our blockchain and crypto asset for risk consulting alongside Kareem. And I am uh, Kareem Sadek. I'm a partner in our technology risk consulting practice, and I co-lead, uh, as Kunal just mentioned, the blockchain practice along with him. And Adam, always a pleasure talking to you. Pleasure is all mine, sir. Kareem, I'm going to start with you. And I think many of our listeners are familiar with traditional custodianship models that cater to physical and dematerialized asset classes. But could you walk us through a few of the custodianship models that align to digital assets and explain how they differ from those traditional models? So, so maybe, yeah, let me take a, try to take a stab at this. And uh, Kunal and, and Edwin, please help me out here. Uh, in simple terms, so crypto assets are stored on blockchains. So think of Bitcoin, the asset, which is recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain. Similarly, if you think about Ether, Ether is a native asset of, on Ethereum, which is used to pay for transactions interacting with decentralized finance applications that are stored on Ethereum. And and maybe I'll I'll, I'll give a little bit of an example, and I actually I'm gonna steal an example that uh, one of our team members, Mitch, uh, uses all the time. So the ownership of these assets relies on public-private key pairs. So think of the public key like an email address, where if anyone knows my address, they can send, send me emails, right? That's, that's the norm. The private key is sort of akin to the email account's password, which must be used each time a transaction is sent. And again, if you think about it, if one's password is compromised, then anyone can send emails from their account. Likewise, that private key, if stolen, then the crypto assets contained can be removed. So that's sort of a little bit of an example that, uh, as I said, I wanted to, to take an example from Mitch, but I think that's that's actually gives a very good explanation to it. Okay, so I guess coming to the two questions around custodial models, there really are two approaches, the one being self-custody, where you take on that characteristic of looking after the keys, or the other one is relying on a dedicated custodian. Self-custody, I believe, was the initial intention around Bitcoin, where users would hold their own keys to control their own funds. However, as the value of crypto assets have risen, plus institutional investors entering the space, including these investors, they obviously have a fiduciary mandate. Many multi-investor-grade custodians have emerged. These firms are collectively holding hundreds of billions of dollars in crypto assets and provide services to institutional investors as clients. Wow, 100 billion. It's difficult to fathom and I'm gonna get lost in it, but before I do, perhaps I can just touch on something. Kunal, can you describe for us some of the benefits of using a custodian? Sure. So so think of transactions on, on a blockchain, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum, 
these all these transactions are are atomic in nature and are irrevocable. So it is critical to have the right levels of controls in place to ensure that one, the correct amount um, is being sent or received, and and also the recipient addresses are are appropriate. So, you know, a custodian using a custodian is actually beneficial for these organizations because these custodians have specific technology and controls in place, such as the multi-signature or the multi-party computation systems that increase the security in initiating those transactions, just because by nature, these are atomic and, and irrevocable. So by requiring multiple signatories or, or sharding the private key into several separate pieces and also having the appropriate controls in initiating these transactions, the risk that the private key could be compromised to, to use uh, for initiating an illegitimate transaction is reduced by quite a bit. Um, another reason why organizations tend to use a custodian is because the time to market is reduced. Um, so if you think about an organization that's looking to deal in, in crypto assets, uh, if they look to build this custodian capability in-house, uh, the time to market for their offerings is increased by quite a bit. Whereas if they rely on a custodian that's already out there and has the infrastructure built in, integrating those in house in integrating with those in-house is something that that organizations tend to go with just because uh, it reduces their time to market by almost half or more than half. That's really interesting. And I, I want to focus now on shifting that viewpoint. So from the perspective of an institutional investor, the benefits of a custodian are quite clear, right? Edwin, can you elaborate on some key considerations when assessing a custodian? Sure. I guess there are two that come to mind. One being the institution's required operational model for the transaction and the custodian's insurance coverage. Now, depending on the nature of the institution's operations, it requires different models for the transacting to take place. For example, a trading desk for a major financial institution will trade more actively than an asset manager who's rebalancing their investment products daily, or even slower still than a family office making a long-term strategic allocation. So as transaction frequency increases, different processes governing private keys are in place to maximize convenience, while at the same time not compromising on security. Another thing that comes to mind, Adam, is the SOC attestation reports that are provided by these custodians. So it is a best practice that custodians are following these days is providing SOC 1 and SOC 2 attestation reports that really gives insights into their internal control environment as it relates to security, um, privacy, confidentiality, availability, and so far and so forth. And their clients are using these SOC reports to, to review what the current practices are within these custodian uh, companies and, and assessing whether they are able to meet the regulatory requirements and the internal requirements for those institutions as well. No, that's, that's amazing. That actually cues me up really, really nicely because I'd be remiss if we don't talk about what happens if security is compromised, right? We talk about these SOC reports and all of that is try to meet some of these security expectations. 
But what if security is compromised? So having comprehensive insurance coverage in place is essential. We're hearing a lot more around insurance and how that actually works. So some of the key considerations of coverage include the aggregate limit of the policy and whether supplemental insurance is available if one's investments exceed the limit. Another thing would be, does the policy cover dishonest acts by employees, thefts and acts of nature like floods or electrical outages? that can compromise the private keys. Another thing you can think of is who are the insurance syndicating the policy, right? And, and, and perhaps most importantly, how does this insurance coverage actually integrate in with the firm's existing insurance? So, so Adam, I can honestly keep going on further and, and go deeper into this, this subject, uh, but I would love to hear from our listeners and hopefully they'll reach out to us because I'd love to have a, a deeper conversation around that and uh, quite frankly, just to see how we can help them in their crypto asset journey. That actually sounds like there's quite a bit to consider. And I know we can go deeper and perhaps that's why we're bringing our listeners a four part special series on the state of crypto assets. So for today's episode, I will stop there and simply thank you all for your valuable insights and your time. Join us next time on the KPMG in Canada's Podbyte series on the state of crypto assets when we'll welcome back Kareem, Kunal, and Mitch for a discussion on proof of reserves, a particularly interesting process that ensures assets recorded on internal ledgers match the assets stored on the blockchains. Once again, I'm Adam Rodericks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.